salo for lava this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. The money that they send back to their families and communities are quite significant. Data constraints could be skewing Pacific remittance figures. Also, an academic in PNG calls for wise spending when Pogera Goldmine reopens. And later. More delegates arrive in Vanuatu for the highly anticipated Melanesian Arts Festival. A new report says Pacific nations could be underreporting the amount of remittances entering the countries due to data constraints. The report by the PESA Plus Implementation Unit looked at remittances from Kiribati, Solomon Islands and Tonga. The lead author, Alisi Holani, speaks with Caleb Fotheringham. The study on the constraints and opportunities on remittances data collection was in response to a request from the countries to look at this issue, noting that remittances in the context of labor mobility is one of the most significant development gain from workers from the Pacific participating in labor mobility schemes. So the money that they send back to their families and communities are quite significant. And the countries wanted to make sure that the data that they have is accurate and reflects the actual value of the remittances received because there are data collection constraints, data measurement constraints, which may lead to the reports on the value or volume of remittances received being less than the actual amount transferred by workers to their countries. We'll get into the constraints in a second, but before we do, is it okay if you tell me how important remittances are to the Pacific? Remittances is significant as a development capital transfer just in terms, firstly, of its volume. So for countries like Tonga, it accounts for about close to 50% of GDP. And so you can imagine from there that it has a potential to contribute to development just because of its significant volume. When you compare it to export receipts, foreign direct investment, and even overseas foreign aid, remittances trumps all of those capital transfers. And so just in its mere volume, it is quite significant. The other aspect of remittances also is the fact that it is a a private transfer. So most individuals or households overseas send it to their private households or relatives in the Pacific. And so they're considered to be private transfers. And because they are private transfers, they can have a direct impact on poverty alleviation and improving the standards of living of countries. And it's also important to note that remittances can be considered to be countercyclical. So in, in times where uh, of economic downturn, like with the COVID-19, you will see remittances actually increasing. And so it becomes a, a safety valve, kind of like to cushion the impact of those economic downturns on household incomes. Let's get to some of the constraints. What constraints did the study pick up on? I think it was very clear from the study, just in terms of the differences in the, the remittances market. So for a country like Kiribati, who does not have a central bank and only has the data that they report or collect on remittances is mainly just from ANZ Bank. You would imagine that the data that they collect is very much um, limited 
And because remittances is a key component of balance of payments, which is usually collected by central banks, the fact that there is no central bank in Kiribati is a significant constraint to collecting accurate data. In countries like Solomon Islands and Tonga, there are constraints also in terms of the capacity of the central banks to collect accurate data. And a lot of the data that's collected, it's mostly limited to the data that's supplied by banks and MTOs or money transfer operations. And so it's very much the formal remittances. But when you look at remittances in its entirety, remittances that are sent by workers also include money that's, you know, they might carry cash. We found that a lot of, of workers do carry cash back to their countries and uh, transfer it informally. They don't go through money transfer operations. They don't go through formal foreign exchange operations or banks. And so that data, the informal uh, remittances might not be recorded. And the other thing also with remittances is the fact that are in-kind remittances, especially we noted this from New Zealand. A lot of the workers that go to New Zealand also send back containers or consignments of goods. And so in-kind remittances are not usually captured in the remittances data that's collected by reserve banks. And so uh, the key constraint that we need to look at in terms of data collection is how we can supplement the data that's collected by the formal channels to take into account those that are not included, maybe perhaps looking at surveys, um, other research opportunities that can be done in parallel to the usual balance of payments methods so that we can have actual data that can be used for, for policy formulation. Andrew Anton Mako is a Papua New Guinea academic who's also working with the Australian National University's Development Policy Centre. He's from Pogera, which is the site of the sometimes controversial and soon to reopen Pogera Gold Mine. He's written extensively on the impact of the mine on the district, both its benefits and its curses, and spoke passionately about it with Don Wiseman. You grew up in Pogera. It's a district with a troubled recent past. But what was it like growing up in Pogera? You know, Pogera, it is part of uh, Anga province, or the western part of Anga province. Pogera town grew with the discovery of uh, gold mines. So it was predominantly a traditional village, a traditional district without modern government services, right? So with the onset of the mine and discovery of the mine, that's when they started building the Pogera township. And then further down to my place where I come from is the Payala district. So, so Pogera Payala. Recently, the government decided to break up the, the electorate into two. So Lagai District and uh, Pogera Payala District. They started as villages, but now they're really cities, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. It's a big mining township. The population before the mine was about 4,000. Now it has exploded. The SML population, the special mining lease population, is more than 70,000. It has grown. And then you've got people from all over the country settling in into Pogera because of the mine. Have they come because they were jobs there or have they come just looking for an opportunity? Both. They are there because 
they got jobs in the mine, as well as there are people moving in, looking for opportunities. And then because of the kinship ties as well, because uh, many people from Pokhara have married outside as well. The mine started and it was a significant boon in terms of the provision of services and just general facilities. Just how significant was that? The mine actually transformed not only the Pokhara Pilot District, but it also transformed the Enga province, right? Enga province, before the mine, it was really underdeveloped. So Enga province, the provincial government has got stake in it as well. So with that money, they were able to develop the province as well. So pay for school fees for Enga province students. And then Pogera as a township, it really, really grew because of the mine. We got modern hospitals, high school, new roads, new settlements. Before the mine, people were living in traditional houses. With the mine, people were relocated from where the mine situated. They were housed in a modern houses. Huh? So it really, really transformed the lives of the local Pogarans huh? from a traditional lifestyle to a modern way of life within a generation, within a few years. There was clearly a lot of money in the community. So what did people do with it? You would think that with this flood of people, there would be flourishing of commerce and so on. Did that happen? So the mine pays the Pogara landowners the royalties, right? And then they also receive a bit of money from the equity side of things as well and the compensation to the destruction of the land as well. So when the mine started, then people receive a lot of money. But it is from a point where they were living in a traditional life. They were not properly equipped with their financial literacy and all that to actually invest the money in productive investments and ventures and all that. But most of the time, the money was spent on consumption and all that, which is good. You know, it improves the lives of the people, right? So... Initially, you know, the royalties were, you know, um, in large amount because the population of the SMN, the landowners, were, were small. But then with the uh, increase in the population, there is little to go around. So that's one of the problems we have seen. Yes. In fact, for the last several years, there have been no royalties because the mine has been shut. But things have got very bad in and around Pogira, haven't they? You know, we've heard stories of people not willing to leave their houses because they were scared of the the potential for violence and so on. Yet the mine is about to reopen, it would seem. Is it, you know, we've gone from this relative golden age and then through hellish period for Pogira. Uh, is Pogira going to have another golden age, do you think? Is it possible? You know, it, it is possible, but it really depends on how the, the proceeds from the mine that will be given to the, uh, to the landowners will be used. You know, in the past, it was only 2.5% of the mine equity stake. Now, the landowners have been given um, 10% free carry by the government. So it will be a lot of money. It is estimated around um, 25 million kina, right? That's a lot of money for the next uh, 20 years. So even though the proceeds will increase, the main issue is the governance of the use of that money, whether it will be used productively to improve the lives of the people or whether it will be used for mostly on consumption. That's the key issue and then that's what I feel as well. What is in place to ensure that it doesn't just get all spent on consumption, that more goes into education and developing sustainable businesses and so on? There are certain things that it needs to be done. I think education is number one. I think, you know, at the moment, Pogara landowners, an SML children trust fund that pays for um, the school fees of uh, Pogara landowners, but I think that trust fund needs to be properly set up as well. Its governance needs to be strengthened as well going forward because uh, we have not seen a lot of students going past high school and secondary school, so they need to do a lot of work in terms of strengthening the trust fund so that we can get a lot of children in school, but actually to get them 
do well in school and to get beyond high school to go to universities and other tertiary colleges and things like that. One of the things that I was uh, proposing is to set up a long-term fund for the Pogara landowners. The mine is, is estimated to uh, last only 20 years when it resumes, and then after that, there won't be any uh, anything to go by if, if the money is just spent on consumption spending. So I, what I was proposing was to set up a long-term fund that will cater for socioeconomic development post the uh, gold mine. And then also at the district level as well, you know, district administration that needs to be strengthened as well and fully funded properly. Its governance needs to be strengthened. There is a Pogara Development Authority that has been set up as a special purpose authority that was set up by the government. That needs to be strengthened as well because that particular entity is um, set up to fund the social economic development of Pogara Paiala District. And so far, it's not been able to do its tasks. Governance is really, really important uh, because if they do not set up their structures properly, that 25 billion or so that has been promised, I mean, that has been um, estimated for landowners will be misused and uh, it will not have anything to show for after 20 years. The critical thing, though, is getting a handle on this violence. Is the reopening of the mine and the creation of jobs and having more money in the community, is that going to stop that or is it going to make it worse? What's the local solution to the law and order issue? That's really important. Law and order is really important. That's one of the things that I think the government have a handle of now before the mine starts. I think there are some efforts being done by the national government and the provincial government and the district authorities as well as the local stakeholders. But, you know, if, if the locality is not safe, it will be difficult to attract people to come and work and, and leave when the mine resumes. So I think law and order is a big issue. The issue escalated during the closure period of the mine. So... It is really important that they get that uh, law and order issue under control before the mine resumes, and then they need to have a permanent solution to it. You know, it's really important that they do that. Uh, this will include the provision of jobs and order to the young people in the, in the community, get those young people involved in you know, meaningful activities so that they can get away from the tribal fights and things like that. And then having a permanent solution that will include the involvement of communities so that they can actually solve problems before they escalate and then also to have a permanent presence of police force as well at the reinforced level. Excitement is building up for the Melanesia Arts and Culture Festival starting this week in Vanuatu. Only the Papua New Guinea delegation is yet to arrive into the capital, Port Vila, to join cultural contingents from Solomon Islands, New Caledonia and Fiji, which were welcomed by the host on Sunday and Monday. RNZ Pacific's Vanuatu correspondent, Helia Bule, spoke with the chairman of the festival organising committee, Richard Ching. This morning we are witnessing the arrival of our uh, delegation from uh, New Caledonia, coming with two ministers, Mr. Minister Powell and another minister. Um, we will be expecting Solomon Islands to come this afternoon and Torres Strait Islands. Uh, and yesterday we've already received uh, the delegation from Fiji. Uh, we will be expecting Papua New Guinea to come later on during the week. Uh, and once they've come, we'll probably be the last uh, contingent to be waiting for. Uh, so we can begin programs and witnesses. And uh, what about the local uh, participants? Uh, most of our local participants are already here. We're just awaiting uh, groups from the banks and Torres, uh, which will arrive later on during the week. But otherwise, all of our local participants, uh, numbering about 600, are already in Villa and waiting for the festival to start. So what time there will be the opening of the uh, art festival? Uh, the, the opening of the Soviet Nation Arts and Culture Festival uh, will be on the 19th of July, 
uh, and it will be an all-day uh, opening program, uh, which will take place uh, on Ivira and uh, the Sarlana stage. So far, can uh, what is your main message uh, to the people of Vanuatu? Uh, my main message is uh, the main message is uh, it is, is as host of uh, of the seven artists. Uh, we would like the people of Vanuatu to to show uh, Vanuatu's hospitality uh, to our incoming visitors, uh, to show treat them with respect, and to make sure that uh, when they leave, they leave with uh, high spirits and they're all happy. We, uh, we, we uh, do not get to have to deal with any issues that will affect the festival. My message is that people uh, respect our incoming vis uh, visitors, help them, and make sure that uh, whenever they leave, the stay over here is very memorable and will be a good uh, event, good and successful event. That's Pacific Ways for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.